Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Celebrate the Chicago Reader. Join us to see the Reader come to life at our second annual Ungala, Wednesday, October 18th at the stunning Epiphany Center for the Arts. We'll have Reader-approved entertainment, including Grammy Award-winning Peter Cottontail, local rockers, The Trenches, DJs, live art, and other performances. More details are at chicagoreader.com. That's chicagoreader.com slash Ungala. Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, October 3rd begins right now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back Ben Jarofsky show legal advisor and podcaster, host of Coogan Knows the Law, Jim Coogan. The Ben Jarofsky show is proudly presented by the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know where to go, what to do, the best places to eat, the best things to drink. You want to know all that and more? Just stop by ChicagoReader.com when you got some time. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky clips, you want some interviews, you want some columns, all that stuff at ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this, wow, horses, hashtag it Tuesday. And here's why. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was tough, tougher to get out later than you thought. You know, back in the day, I had uh, a wonderful friend uh, was my producer, the, the great, the legendary Dr. D. And he used to always make fun of me on Tuesday for wanting to talk about what something that went down on Sunday. He goes, Ben, that was two days ago. Life has moved on. Stop being stuck in the past. You have to be instantaneous. That's the secret to success in this venture, this podcasting venture. You want to be Joe Rogan? You want to have millions and millions of people listening to you? You can't talk about something that happened on Sunday on a Tuesday. Well, I really don't want to be Joe Rogan in any way. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'm sorry, D, wherever you are, I have to toss, discuss this. My beloved Chicago Bears, I've been a fan since 1966. Yes, yes, I'm a diehard. Uh, played one of the worst games in the history of football on Sunday. Uh, they were playing the second worst team in the league, the Bears being the worst team in the league. They had a 28-7 to lead in the third quarter, largely because they were successfully passing the ball. And then they got this bright idea. I know what we're going to do. We're going to stop passing. We're going to run out the clock. <laughs> Oh God, it was everything that happened bad after that resulted from that decision to run out the clock in the middle of the third quarter. A terrible team with no blocking is going to run out the clock. They ended up losing a heartbreaker 31 to 28 to the Denver Broncos, who are so proud that as bad as they are, they're still better than the Bears with this, the quotes uh in the locker room afterwards by the coach sean payton were really insulting well i know we weren't being beating playing a good team but i'll take anyway anyway the bright one my beloved bright one the chicago sun times was so outraged was so outraged by that performance that on monday morning uh, when the paper came out they had a headline 
and the headline reads horses hashtag it so i will live do the lettering for you folks as i take a deep dive into one of my favorite subjects h o r s e s and then i think the letter they want to put in is h i t pause at home think it out if you need to write it down okay just if you need help that's okay i'm here for you i got dyslexia so i have issues with letters too horses hashtag it is what they wrote because they were too scared to put h in there <laughs> and uh, come on sometimes do you think there's just think about this sometimes everybody who goes to the back page with the sports is is a sports fan do you think any of them will be offended if you write h-o-r-s-e-s-h-i-t do you think one bear fan in existence will be offended by that i'm outraged what am i going to tell my children sometimes who are you protecting by putting a hashtag instead of an h now i know you want to be tough and you want to speak what bear fans are thinking and yes bear fans definitely think that was a horseshit play a horseshit call a horseshit game but if you're too chicken to say it, you're as bad as the Bears. <laughs> you're the Bears running out the clock instead of passing the ball in the third quarter. And I have to think, I've now politicized this, uh, that the absolute horribleness of the Chicago Bears is influencing the way I see the world. And I believe it's influencing a lot of people in Chicago, like the Sun-Times. I can't recall the Sun-Times. I've been reading the Sun-Times for as long as I've been rooting for the Bears. Let's pause and think of that, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Sun-Times uh, writers and editors, you have no bigger fan in the city of Chicago. I actually subscribe to your paper. Half of you guys don't even subscribe to it. So I, I have never seen the Sun-Times write something like uh, horse, horse shit. <laughs> The, the bear's badness is bringing an anger out of people. And I think it's like affecting how I view politics as well. I'm like angry all the time at everything. I'm particularly angry at the city of Chicago for its ineptitude at dealing with the busloads of migrants that are pouring in from Texas. MAGA Governor Greg uh, Abbott sending busloads of Venezuelans uh, that he lured into buses to Chicago. Like he's really trying to stick the needle into Chicago and Chicago's Chicago's response to that is as bad as what the bears are doing. If I were the sun times, I would say it's horses hashtag it. Chicago's response uh, to the, uh, the challenge. I wouldn't even call it a crisis. The challenge. Suddenly Chicago can't find any builders. I've never seen anything like this. Like the justification of the Johnson administration for the 10th city is like, it's overwhelming. How do you build? We don't know how to build anything. Are you kidding? This town is crawling with hustlers, developers, real estate people, bankers. That's all I met for like the first two years when I was in Chicago. Well, hi, my name's Ben. What do you, what, you're, what's your name? My name is Billy Bob. I'm a developer. Everywhere I went, I met developers. Now suddenly, I don't know where they are. Where are they? Anyway, it's a, it's like a lingering question. Who's more pathetic? Chicago in its response. And by the way, mainstream Chicago, you're not off the hook. 
I will repeat this over and over and over again. You guys, when it comes to something like Amazon or when it comes to something like Daily's Olympics, it's like we're we're the monsters of the midway. We're the city where we make no small plans. We're the city that works. We're the city that built itself from the Chicago fire. No, it's just handling some busloads of immigrants. It's like, I don't know what to do. This is a crisis. <laughs> help, help. These guys are as pathetic as the bears. Anyway, uh, sometimes my only advice to you, if, if you're going to let your freak flag fly, really let it fly. Don't hold back. Come on, guys. I, I want next week. No, Bears are playing on Thursday to against Washington. I'll, they'll probably lose that game. They'll be 0-5 in this year, uh, and they will have lost 15 in a row. Come on! Really, just let it fly sometimes. Don't hide behind the hashtag. All right, uh, patiently awaiting uh, is Ace Attorney Jim Coogan. We're, we're ready to take a deep dive into something having nothing to do with everything I just said. Classic moment of the Ben Jarowski show. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, civil case in New York, civil fraud case, which I am utterly obsessed with and fascinated by what it says about Donald Trump, what it says about business, what it says, his, his the arguments put forth by his lawyers, I find just really compelling and fascinating. I need uh, Jim Coogan, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan, to unpack them. But Jim, before we do that, you, first of all, welcome back to the show, Cotter. Good to see your smiling face. Thanks for having me back, Ben. Uh, and uh, I want you to do two things. One, promote your podcast, and two, uh, promote the fact that you were actually at the Chicago Bears game on Sunday, uh, and then you asked to answer the question, do you think it was a horses hashtag it moment, uh, or do you think the Sun-Times is being unfair to uh, the Chicago Bears? Take it away. I'm not sure what the Sun-Times would have to say at this point to be unfair uh, based on the way things are going for these these poor Bears. Um, but, I, you know, you you guys used to play that game where you would uh, comment on the headlines. I mean, it's they invoked horses, you know, those bucking Broncos. There's like, you know, there's the horses stampeded all over them in the, I don't know, third quarter on, basically. Up to a certain point there, it actually started to feel like they were going to be fine. Um, and and I, I, I'll tell you this much as your intrepid beat writer on the scene for, for this, uh, to witness this in person. I, I said it a couple of times. There was a bunch of Broncos fans around where we were sitting too. And I said a couple of times out loud, you know, if you can't score against a team that just gave up 70 points the prior week, yeah. I don't care what your issues are. I don't care if you have problems across the offensive line, injuries, you know, rookies trying to fill in. I don't care what the situation is. That it would be unacceptable. And for the first two and a half quarters, it was going great. I think Justin Fields completed his first 18 or 19 passes, and it looked like he finally had, I'm sure it helped, playing a team that wasn't getting after him as much, but it looked like he finally had some command of the offense that I hadn't seen him do as a passer in the past you know, two years here. So unfortunately, uh, there, there, became, there came a point where that turned a little bit, and there were a couple of questionable decisions by the coaches that made it a lot worse that I, I'll, I will, you know, ultimately, even though he was doing as well as he was doing and they got DJ Moore involved, uh, the play call that exposed him to what turned into that fumble for a touchdown. Um, they had already had plenty of free runners. So it's like the Broncos were already getting after him. It's just that, 
he was moving often and, and he was finding his guys and he, and Cole Komet was open every time he looked at him. So why they would continue to potentially expose him to, to a, a play action play where his back is to the line. And then all of a sudden there's a guy in his face and now they just scoop it up for a touchdown. I mean, even then it was still a 14 point game until that play cut it to a touchdown. So um, it was a bit mystifying. And then you start to look around and think, Oh my God, <laughs> 28 to seven wasn't enough in my, by the way, just as an, an astute bears fan, uh, I, I also said out loud multiple times to the Bears fans around me, there are no such thing as too many points today. So keep scoring. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't know. It's not that I specifically saw this coming, but I didn't think that there was any, I had no confidence in how their defense would play. They're very depleted. So, you know, it's, it's, I guess I, some part of me sort of knew what was going to happen. I, uh, uh, I just want to push back a little bit. Uh, I did get sometimes, to, to, just so you don't think I didn't get the pun of using horse with uh, S hashtag IT. You could have used <laughs> bull, but you went with horse. And I said, oh, you went with horse because they were playing the Broncos. I got it sometimes. Very clever. My issue is substituting the hashtag for the H. Uh, all right. Jim. Hey, I almost forgot. You did. You gave me an, an opening and I forgot to say uh, I am uh, thrilled to continue to promote our new podcast. It's called Coogan Knows the Law. Yes. We dropped a new episode today, actually. I got an interview with a good friend. Uh, his name is Steve Fretzen. He's like a legal business development guru. We talk about building a law firm, connecting with clients, making the whole system work. And there's all kinds of other great content out there discussing, explaining what the law is, explaining little uh, specific details in the law. They're little digestible 10, 15 minute episodes. So check it out wherever the finest podcasts are found. All right. That's what I wanted you to do. Uh, Coogan knows the law. So let's uh, show uh, people how you know the law. Donald Trump, former president, Donald Trump, uh, MAGA's favorite is uh, on trial in New York City right now and having to do with uh, damages uh, in a fraud case. Jim, like I said, I've been obsessively following this. <laughs> Part of me is just laughing in disbelief at the outrageous claims. This is me speaking, not Jim. The outrageous claims that Trump's attorneys are making and continually make uh, that obvious, his obvious... <laughs> His obvious fraudulent behavior is not really fraud because, and I'll boil it down, everybody does it. Uh, and the banks didn't lose money on the deal. Uh, and so uh, leave us alone. And they just keep repeating that no matter how many times the judge uh, dismisses it as a, uh, a defense. They just keep continue to repeat it and repeat it. Uh, now, this is a, uh, a state trial. So I understand that in the cases of the federal trials that he's facing in um, uh, uh, Washington and Florida, uh, he's hoping to be victorious it, uh, in November of 2024. And then he could just fire all the lawyers who are prosecuting him uh, and uh, pardon himself. I don't know what his strategy is for the state trial uh, that he's uh, is, is uh, in the midst of. Uh, but, uh, so why don't we just start with you laying out for some of my listeners who are probably obsessed with Chicago politics or Chicago sports and may not, uh, be following closely, uh, what Donald Trump has, um, 
well, he's, the judge has already ruled uh, that he committed fraud. So why don't you just uh, lead us through this a little bit? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is the case that we all should have seen coming when Michael Cohen testified about this business fraud scheme of Donald Trump's years ago. Uh, you know, he, he was a guy who, once everything fell on his head, decided to describe what Trump had been doing all along. And I, I don't, I think at the time it was really not even that complicated. When it was convenient, the Trump organization and its various subsidiaries would create documents that claimed that the value of different properties was much higher than they could ever substantiate in the marketplace. And in other types of documents, like where it was convenient to reduce their tax burden, they would deflate those numbers. So essentially they were claiming different values for things in different places. Now in and of itself, that isn't a crime necessarily. It depends on how much that value is shifting. And these are real estate investments. So it's not like deciding what a Ford, you know, edge is gonna cost because you can look on in line and you could, there's 50 dealerships within a 50 mile radius and there's pretty much a, a pretty tight price range. If you're talking about Mar-a-Lago, or you're talking about Trump Tower, or you're talking about uh, Bedminster, his other golf course in New Jersey, the value is really whatever somebody might pay for it. So there's always going to be some play in what those claims might be. The question is how exaggerated are those claims? How consistently are they being exaggerated? And to whom are they being exaggerated? So the examples included multiples of thousands and you know clear knowledge that that those properties would never be worth anything close to that in, in what was actually charged here, the way that the attorney general went through it. And ultimately, as you pointed out, uh, this litigation has been going on for some time. There have been different motions to dismiss. The judges ruled on many of the points of law already. And he has specifically admonished Mr. Trump's attorneys that he has thrown out, dismissed, disagreed with, and ruled on all of these defenses over and over and over again in an extensive 30-something page order that was issued last week. That was where the judge declared that the fraud has already occurred, that on some of these issues, it's so clear-cut that there was fraud that as a matter of law, he has entered that decision. Now, the Trump legal strategy clearly does not, it's not intended to ingratiate themselves with Judge Engeron because they continue to repeat the same things over and over, regardless of whether they've already been ruled upon and regardless of whether the judge has admonished them to stop making those same claims. And it happened this week again. They still brought up those same, if you want to call them defenses, even though they're, they're really not. Now, in the law, that might be a deliberate strategy to keep that issue alive, preserve it for appeal. That's the way lawyers refer to it. Uh, if you object to something early in the process, you have to keep objecting at different points along the way, or an appellate court might decide that you waived that objection and you didn't preserve it for appeal. But, uh, and, and by the way, because it's a ruling as a matter of law, it means that this is something they'll certainly appeal and an appellate court might look at it differently although the, the evidence here is not really in their favor uh, because I don't think that these defenses that they're claiming are even relevant as a matter of law. In other words, the fraud is the, 
is committed once the document is created and it's signed as if that is the truth. It's not a, you don't turn around and see whether or not the bank made money off the deal, whether the loan was eventually paid off and so on and so forth. Those may be moral defenses or factual defenses outside the court of law. But in a court of law, this is why Judge Engeron's already made this ruling that the fraud is done. It's been committed. It's over. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, and the excuses don't actually, there are times when you could have mistake or some other defense to a crime or to a civil thing uh, that would more or less uh, invalidate it or, or kind of neutralize whatever the thing it is that you're being claimed to have done. But this isn't one of them. So under the circumstances, that's why that order has already been entered. And I thought it was odd yesterday, there was like a trending thing. I don't know if you saw this where uh, mega people were, were trumpeting the fact that some of the claims were thrown out based upon the statute of limitations. That was already known too. That wasn't like new news. They, you know, the, the attorney general took the office when she took the office. She started the case when she started the case. She wasn't around in 2014. She didn't, she wasn't the attorney general then. So it's not as if she had the opportunity to charge him with those crimes uh, or with those uh, civil frauds. But this is basically, the other thing about it is it's not a criminal case. It's a question of whether your business enterprise and you as a business operator deserve to continue to have a license to operate in the state of New York. And then secondarily, the trial that's going on now is now that the fraud has been shown and the judge decided it happened, how much money can be disgorged, which is returned to the, the people of the state of New York and then maybe distributed to people who are defrauded, uh, which would be paid by the Trump organizations. All right. Um, so as you were saying, some of the fraud was so blatant. Uh, and I think the most telling one of all the evidence was the size that he stipulated of his um, his unit? <laughs> yep. Talk about his uh, a condo unit, ladies and gentlemen. Just stay clean. And you wrote something in a text to me, which I I would love for you to riff on a little bit, if you would. And uh, so I will now read to you your text that you sent to me. This is part of the actual order. The second paragraph is the heart of why A, Trump's a fraud, and B, his defenses in this case are so utterly meritless, and C, are so very representative of the deep and abiding problem with this man having so much power. And I am um, would love for you to riff on that, explain what you were getting at, because uh, I do believe, I would agree with you, uh, that the, his behavior in this in this matter reflects his behavior in the political arena. So uh, why don't you take a deep dive? Go ahead. Well, you know, the square footage thing is just bonkers. I'm, I mean, the judge even seems mystified by the fact that on top of everything else, the man is a property developer. So square footage and, you know, things that you might use to say that property has a certain characteristic and is marketable and valuable for some reason, you'd think that that's something that could at least be in the ballpark <laughs> but he's out there claiming that it's what 30,000 square feet when it's a little or just under 11,000 square feet. It's so completely out of proportion. It's not a question of, you know, the angles of the walls are a little funny here. So one, one measurement might come out to 10,995 and the other person's might be 11,004 square feet. It's, it's just, it's just blatant. And, 
you know, the, the paragraph that I was riffing on is maybe the heart of what Judge Ingeron was writing here, just dismissing completely and as emphatically as he possibly could these goofball defenses. Um, and, and the language that I thought was notable, um, it's, there's some legalese in here to kind of strip out, but it's, it goes to, he says, the defenses Donald Trump attempts to articulate in his sworn deposition are wholly without basis in law or fact. He claims that if the values of the property had gone up in years since the statements of financial condition were submitted, then the numbers were not inflated at the time. That, and by the way, this is very Trumpian to, <laughs> to pretend as if a claim that is not future looking. It's saying, here's my statement of financial condition right now. Right now, Mar-a-Lago is worth whatever, $16 billion or whatever he's going to claim. It's not if it were somehow to be worth $16 billion in eight years, it doesn't make that statement <laughs> back in 2023 true. If you were to say the Bears are the best football team in the NFL, and in 2055 they finally win a Super Bowl, yeah. we're not going to look back and say, "Well, you know what? When, you know, when he said that in 2023, Ben was right." If that's preposterous, <laughs> and no human being—if you take it out of the political realm or you step away from the the consistent BS that comes out of that guy's mouth—nobody would ever claim that that makes any sense. And yeah. it's it's the same concept. And that's what the judge was just completely dismissing out of hand is that now that he's been caught clearly committing fraud, creating these goof, and by the way, we can get into the statements of financial condition, you know, that the whole, all of the details surrounding that, that his accountants would never sign off on it, even though he begged them to do it, but they would tell him these are, they don't follow generally accepted accounting principles. They're not legitimate financial statements. They're not based in reality. We're not standing for any of these propositions. We'll put our name on here and say and use disclaimers and say, well, you know, these are all Mr. Trump's statements. And then on top of that, he's he's also blaming um, what's his his financial guy that, that it's all his fault as well. So it's it's like fraud upon fraud upon blaming other people at every stage. So that's I guess why the judge was so completely he's beside himself at this point. Yeah, well, it's an insult. So MAGA, just MAGA. Weisselberg is the name. Weisselberg, yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. I didn't do anything wrong, and it's his fault. Uh, <laughs> uh, so MAGA, just look, just think about this, MAGA. I, I know you're going to defend Trump no matter what. We we, we realize that. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, but if someone <laughs> sold you an apartment uh, told, that they told you was 30000 square feet and you went over to the apartment and it was only 11,000 square feet you would want your money back MAGA yeah no matter how much you love Donnie Trump you would want your money back oh but not in this case you want this guy to be president by the way this is like a more serious version of what he did uh when he was sworn in in 2017 where he took a he declared that there were more people at his inauguration than were at uh Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration, even though everybody could see from the photographs that there weren't, you know? <clears throat> and so Donald Trump does not care in any way that people know he's lying. He doesn't, he just will say something, even if the evidence that is staring you in the face, Jim, shows that what he's saying is a lie, he will just continue to repeat it. I tell you, he's gotten far in the world with this ability to do this. I mean, just think about this. 
Uh, and he's going out the way he came in. He's just he's he's just doing it. And the whole issue again comes down to uh, whether he can win the 2024 election, uh, which has nothing to do with whether there's anything remotely legal about saying 11,000 square feet is really 30,000 uh, square feet. All right, let me uh, get your thoughts on the argument repeated over and over again uh, by uh, Trump's lawyers that there are no victims in this matter. So therefore, it's a frivolous case to bring against Trump, that the banks, uh, as in the people, the institutions that lent Donald Trump money uh, to build his properties, uh, received all the the loans were paid back for all the loans that they made to Donald Trump. Uh, and so who cares <laughs> if he uh, lied like Pinocchio uh, regarding the square footage in any of his properties, as long as the banks made their money. Your thoughts on that argument? Well, there are, I mean, so first of all, it does, legally it does not matter. And I think that the other, I mean, these are just arguments at this point. And we haven't heard the rest of the evidence. I'm curious to see which kinds of witnesses that the attorney general is going to put forward here, whether it'll be bank executives, loan people, uh, and what kind of evidence they're going to show about whether that's even true. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to take their word for it that these, all these loans were paid back. I mean, that, that there was a whole discovery process that went on for years. And as, as people have now seen some of these clips that have come out, Trump has testified, Weisselberg has testified, other family members have testified. So um, they're going to be caught in lies, more likely, just based on, you know, that's my guess, because of the way that they operate. Um, and that may also include impeaching them once they put them on the stand. One of the more effective ways, and it's, this is not working with a jury, but it's still effective with the judge or any other finder of fact, if the person's up there and they're confronted with some particular document, and now they've testified and try to weasel around something, then you can show up on the screen when they showed it to him a few months ago in, in a deposition where they said the exact opposite. And then now you've now the judge can rightly draw the inference they're being dishonest. But the other part about it is it was always a little bit weird that certain financial institutions would continue to do business with someone who had obviously and consistently defaulted on all sorts of different obligations. Um, you know, if, if I were to guess, and this is why I am curious to see what some of this evidence is going to show. I would think that some of these banks had reasons to do business with him that were beyond the business itself. So because he, at least until he decided to run for president, had this aura around him of successful businessman, it meant that there was some cachet to it. It meant that maybe, you know, and, and he is very, he was connected. A lot of people have turned their back on him because his character has just gotten either more exposed or worse or both. But he was connected to a lot of people. And he had access to inner circles of types in New York, then a little bit more in the political realm. As he has said more than once, he's been giving money to Republicans and Democrats for 30 years because that's how you do business. So it could be that those high-ranking bank officials saw some other benefit in doing business with him and figured, well, sometimes he actually makes money. And even if he doesn't, maybe it's worth the risk. Um, but, but we still have to see whether any of that's actually accurate as to whether or not there are real victims here. But more to the point, to the extent that anybody in the internal 
loan underwriting process was even to any extent that they were relying on these documents, I, I promise you that if they knew that they were fraudulent at the time, because maybe not everybody was as clued in, maybe somebody was just a numbers guy and didn't pay attention and just kind of knew there was this Trump guy who was on television. If they knew that they were fraudulent, if he was, that he was overvaluing something that he was putting up for collateral that was worth 10% of whatever, whatever he was claiming, I don't think they could have made the same decisions. So the notion that that's, that's victimless or that it had no impact on the economy of the state of New York, that's, I, they, I don't think they could prove that even if they tried. Uh, and I'll also uh, show a different uh, set of victims uh, than the business people or bankers in New York, uh, taxpayers in the city of Chicago, Trump Towers in the city of Chicago. And as you pointed out in one of your texts to me, Trump Tower uh, is very much a part of this fraud case. Uh, and he did the same thing with Trump Towers that he did with his property uh, in New York, which is uh, exaggerate its value when he was looking to get loans to build it uh, and then <laughs> go in a completely different direction when uh, he was appealing his uh, property tax assessment. Uh, so ultimately, somehow or other, he convinced uh, the great geniuses at the county uh, board, at the county board, the county assessor's office to lower his value uh, and thus raising taxes on everybody else. Ben, you're not going to go on a riff here about how taxpayers don't realize that this is fleecing them every time that they give the, have these giveaways to people like Trump or to tips, are you? I, I actually was going to go on that, uh, <laughs> that riff, but you went there for me. Uh, so there are a set of victims uh, in the case of uh, when you underestimate the value of your property uh, in quick conjunction with overestimating its value, uh, just like Michael Cohen said two years ago. Uh, what is your understanding of the how the Trump Tower uh, could be impacted by this uh, this case in New York? Well, the other, I mean, the bigger part of this ruling from last week is their business licenses have been revoked. And that property, it's um, something Wabash, the name of the, the LLC that it's held in, 444 Wabash or something like that. That was listed as one of the licenses that's revoked right now. So, I mean, I assume that they are in limbo. I don't know for sure whether that can that uh, legal operation of revoking that license can be suspended based upon a legal appeal. In other words, that the case is appealed and therefore whatever would happen that forces the termination of their ability to function uh, is immediate versus whether it's stayed. But if that's the case, I assume they must be scrambling right now to find a buyer. Um, and of course, the flip side to all this, you know, the, the, the trial is going to last a couple more weeks, maybe the rest of October. But I think it's only starting to dawn on all of the political observers and all these pundits who consistently think that he's playing fifth dimension chess or something like that, that this could be the end of all of it. Because if he can't do business, not just in the state of New York, but whatever other businesses, because he's there's hundreds of Trump organization LLCs. People refer to it as the Trump organization because it's a nice catch-all term for all these little LLCs that they've formed all over the place. Um, if those are not allowed to operate, then you have a real problem that just snags the operation of any of it. It affects bank accounts that they have. It affects uh, accounts receivable that they're getting paid by renters, by other contractors that they're dealing with. And then eventually, to the extent that there's a disgorgement ruling and the judge decides it's, if it's the $250 million that 
Letitia James is seeking or some fraction thereof or possibly more, it's anybody's guess as to whether or not Donald J. Trump has enough liquid cash inside or outside of his businesses to satisfy anything close to that. Now, you know, we've talked about this over the years on this show that he has consistently and very effectively fleeced his, his uh, supporters to donate to his various legal campaigns. But you, you tend to wonder if he's really worth the money that he claims that he is, why he would need a few hundred thousand dollars here and there to pay legal fees. Um, on the other hand, maybe it means that he's not. And even if the bill, you know, now we've gone through the, the, the fact that, of course, if you take his valuations, then of course his empire is worth 12 or 13 billion dollars. But maybe the real valuation is somewhere around a billion, maybe total, if you took best case scenario, what he could sell those properties for. Um, so that would mean he'd have to sell these things too. And as soon as he loses the ability to sell those properties, now he can't borrow the way that he's borrowed over the years. Uh, and the whole thing would unravel. And I mean everything. I mean, he'd, I guess he'd, he'd probably still have a house somewhere, but unless he had to, if he had to sell Mar-a-Lago, this would be like a complete, uh, the implosion of the Death Star or something like that for the, the organization. Uh, then he really would need uh, to win the election just to have a place to, to stay. Uh, uh, it's 401 North Wabash LLC. Uh, and okay. That used to be the site. Here we go. Uh, a little history lesson of the uh, Chicago Daily News. The Chicago Sun-Times used to mm. be on that site. So I would say it's a classic case of devolution. I've argued this forever. Uh, we were better off as a civilization when it was a newspaper facility there uh, and uh, as opposed to Trump Tower. You know what else? They're also in trouble with the with the environmental authorities. Oh, on Trump Tower? Yeah, oh my goodness. Yes. They keep sucking in more water than they're allowed to, and they pump out, like, we're talking many multiples more gallons than they're supposed to in superheated water. Yes. It's destructive to the environment. I mean, like, on top of everything else, of course, everything else is toxic. Yeah, and and, uh, it's the same principle. They're they're misrepresenting the amount of mo- amount of water they're dumping into the Chicago River. This guy is uh to quote him a bad citizen. This a bad what what was his line? He's bad or whatever. He had that line. He, and, uh before I move on to my next point on this, there was an essay uh, that I'll be talking probably tomorrow with Monroe is in the New York Times if, uh, uh David French about how the Trump fever is not about to break anytime soon. Now, I know we're going to start moving in with this point uh, to political away from legal. We'll get back to legal, as you know. But uh, French points out a very interesting essay about how evangelicals view Donald Trump as uh, God's messenger. And that's like, wow, that's of all the messengers that the almighty could select. <laughs> I have a hard time. This is it. Is this what he came up with? I wish you heard that the Lord works in mysterious ways. Yeah, this is a mystery to me. But if if <laughs> you're not going to get a lot of people to switch their um uh their vote based on a fraud case, even if he's saying <laughs> I have a thirty thousand square feet when it's only eleven. All right. Um, two issues I want to raise: uh, him threatening uh, judges, witnesses, prosecutors. Uh, but before we do that, he took the judge, not a jury trial here. Uh, he's had the, the same judge that he's ripping, that he says is biased, 
that he says is on a, a, a witch hunt, blah, blah, blah. That's the guy he chose to determine his future in this damages. Your thoughts about that? Okay. I, I did not come on this show to defend Alina Haba and Chris Kais, the defense attorneys. <laughs> but knowing a little bit more about this than I think the first blush you might have seen on social media, like, wow, how could these lawyers not have remembered to check that box? It's the the... It's a fine distinction, but this is a case about equitable principles. So the remedies that the state of New York is looking for here are equitable in nature and not legal in nature. What that means is legal cases are contract. You breach a contract, you want your money back because the other side didn't deliver. Or if I'm suing a defendant for injuring one of my clients, we want damages for that. That's just where the law can balance things out by giving money from one party to the other transferring that that value. Equitable things are more unique and unusual and generally can't be awarded or not do not involve juries at all. So equitable things would be like a TRO. You know, you're trying to stop a building from being built because it's going to destroy a riverbed or something. You go into court and you ask for the judge to stop it from happening. Disgorgement is an equitable principle because basically you're, you're not giving damages to the party that was harmed. You're ripping money back away from the party that committed the fraud. So my understanding is that even if they had asked for a jury, they may not have gotten it. So they may have just assumed it was pointless to ask in the first place. But, you know, far be it from me to try to get too deep into the strategic thinking over there. Well, my thought uh, is that they're pursuing uh, their central argument if you can call it an argument, or their central position, which mixes the political with the legal, with a heavy emphasis on the political, is that everybody uh, who is reviewing Donald Trump is biased against him, and that all these cases are manufactured uh, to bring him down and prevent him from being uh, a viable candidate to, uh, for the presidency. And so you, I just figured, oh, well, he's already set this judge up to be a villain. Let's con continue with that. It gets a little messier if you take you have to deal with a jury's decision you know well, what I'm saying? yeah keep in mind he's already ripped on the citizens of washington dc anticipatorily saying it's unfair to be dragged into court there and all his minions in the media keep talking about how they vote 90 percent democrat but i i think you're right it's easier to vilify just one whatever rogue judge a terrible person as he's called arthur ingeron uh without basis and my understanding is a very well respected judge in the new york legal community but it wouldn't make any difference if it was, you know, Clarence Darrow serving as judge or, or it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't matter who it was. He would obviously yeah. still vilify that person. Yeah. Um, uh, and that judge was bending over backwards yesterday. Uh, see, this is where it works. Yeah. And I talk all the time as a favorite Ben riff, uh, how they play refs. Magas worked it to an art form playing the refs. Uh, and they always whine and cry uh, about whoever is, uh, and, well, they'll whine and cry about anything. I, you know, I used to say they, uh, LeBron James whined and cry about referees' decisions as much as MAGA, but no, I'm sorry, LeBron, I insulted you. Uh, they wake up whining and crying. Uh, and so but, so, but what it does, I watched the judge yesterday bending over backwards to be friendly, to be funny, to, you know what I mean, to prove to the world that he's not biased against this guy who obviously doesn't care in any way about legal conventions, propriety. Uh, he'll go right down from that courtroom 
uh, Jim, and go before the cameras and say all such mean, nasty things about the judge, uh, which Lord knows what kind of threats that inspires the MAGA brain mm -hmm. to uh, issue. Uh, so I feel, uh, to a certain degree, his his uh, playing the refs works because uh, judges surely are bending over backwards to show uh, they are not biased. Uh, so let's talk about this. I've never seen, maybe you know something I don't from the legal history, a defendant who was um, so um, critical, and that's a mild, a euphemistic word, of judges, prosecutors, juries, witnesses, uh, whole entire cities. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Washington. The stuff he says about Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor in Georgia, uh, he just calls them all kinds of names, uh, veiled threats that MAGA picks up, so security concerns are heightened at every single one of these venues. Uh, people live in fear of what MAGA will do in response uh, to God's messenger uh, sending out a tweet, or I guess he's not on Twitter anymore, whatever, uh, issuing a statement. Um, have you ever seen anything like this? And uh, how is this acceptable in any way? Go ahead. Uh, okay. Not at this level of notoriety. There are genuinely crazy or just vile people who are up on you know, murder charges who just spend the entire trial disrupting the proceedings, uh, acting like a lunatic, either because they're trying to concoct some kind of insanity, or they think it's not too late to concoct an insanity defense, even though that's usually not how it would work. Um, so it does happen, but not with someone who, for God's sakes, was the president of the United States. I mean, it's just, it's so unbecoming to behave this way, to talk this way, or even the words, you ought to go after this attorney general. Who, who are you directing to go after her? I mean, these aren't, these aren't like, you could spend the rest of your life trying to parse the psychology of Donald Trump, the way that he uses language. And I'm sure somebody's there's probably college courses about this now, just because I, while I wish it were irrelevant, there's a lot of people who are enamored with it. But talking tough, he's just, he's a thug deep down. He, he prefers to use force to win arguments, to not even to win them on the merits, to just force the other side to give up. Um, but threatening in unveiled ways, you're opposing like the attorney, the, the attorney general of the state of, of, of New York. And I get that perhaps someone might think, well, I don't want to suck up to the judge at this point because I've just been a complete, you know, crazy person this entire time. I better just keep it up. But no, I, I mean, for at this scale, with this level of notoriety in a trial that the whole nation is watching, no lawyer would advise their client to behave this way, but we all know that he's beyond anything that uh, his attorneys might advise him of. And then he's certainly not going to take any of that advice at this point. And you already hit the nail on the head. While I don't understand why he wouldn't put up a better legal defense in this case, given the stakes, it could be that it just doesn't matter and they're, they're cooked anyway. But they're trying this case in the court of public opinion. And irrespective of the fact that he can't, even if he were to win the presidency, he cannot undo whatever the state of New York does to him. I don't know. I guess it's like that's all that's left at this point is just to scream and rant and yell 
And, you know, he does seem like the kind of guy who's filled with a lot of rage. So I don't know that it's all calculated. I think that some of it, he just can't help himself. I was watching him walk away from the, the camera bank last night and, uh, you know, more pop, more little thoughts pop into his head and he has to turn back around and keep screaming at the, the bank of cameras <laughs> about some other, you know, non sequitur that doesn't really advance anything. It's yeah. these aren't interesting thoughts. I don't know the last time he had one of those. Yeah, no, I, um, it's, I guess my takeaway from what you just said is this is his strategy and he's sticking with it. This is how he's, this has been his strategy his entire life. This is what he knows. He's good at it. Uh, and again, uh, this is not the venue for the political conversation. Uh, David Ferris came on the show uh, about two weeks ago uh, and pointed out how the Electoral College map favors, already favors Republicans, and after this last census, favors them even more. Uh, so Democrats have to win. <laughs> what a crazy system. Democrats just don't have to beat Donald Trump. They have to beat him by a significant margin mm -hmm. so that they win over the quote-unquote swing states, uh, or enough swing states, uh, to um, win the Electoral College. <clears throat> and um, I'm watching this, at both the legal and the political. Uh, I have a hard time believing, maybe it's uh, naivete, naivete uh, Jim, that Swing voters, let's say Georgia or Arizona or Wisconsin or uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, will be more likely to vote for Donald Trump than they were in 2020 based on everything that's happened since the November 2020 election. Anything can happen in politics, uh, just like in sports. So I uh, got to stay vigilant, but I, I have faith in American voters. Uh, do you share that faith? Just Well, first of all, I did want to add one other thing to our last little exchange, which is he is still channeling, channeling his inner Roy Cohn. So let's never forget that. That's, that's, that's his, uh, I don't know, whatever his, his, his guru or something like that, that yeah. he wants to aspire to be at the end of the day. He, he'll never, whatever advice that he absorbed from that guy, it's on full display. But as far as the voters go, yeah, I mean, it comes down to those states that you just identified. I actually think we we may have been, or I may have been texting at you about, <laughs> about the Electoral College. Uh, and one thing that gives me a little bit of solace is that for the main, for the majority of the states that would be swing states, because there's only like seven or eight of them that are really swing states at this point, unless something drastically changes somewhere, are governed by either reasonable, rational people rational Republicans, and there are a couple of them out there, or by Democrats. Yeah. And even though Georgia is, their, their governor there is a Republican, he certainly has stood up to Trump up to this point. Um, and so I, I, that's more about election interference and screwing around with vote counts or making it impossible for population centers to get their votes in. It's that sort of thing that yeah. for, for all the you know, flaws of, of uh, how they've run Georgia in the last few years. The Secretary of State there acquitted himself very well in 2020. And they were, I, I wish I could remember the man's name, but one of his assistants was almost belligerent when it came to his media appearances, pointing out how they were, they were going to do things by the book. Yeah. They weren't going to get influenced by anybody. And they didn't. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they, they conducted a clean vote in the presidential election and they conducted a clean vote in those supplemental Senate elections in what were 
you know, razor thin. Uh, I don't know what was the what was the margin. I think Trump knows that number really well. Or actually, somebody probably wrote it down for him in that Brad Raffensperger <laughs> call. But anyway, I mean, so when it comes to my faith in the electorate, I would agree with you that there's nothing has happened since about the moment he took the oath of office to really endear himself to anybody who is impressionable or who isn't sure which side they want to support or might be considered a swing voter. I don't really think that that's happened. Yeah. You combine that with, I mean, the bigger, I would say Dobbs is just as influential in terms of suburban voters in, in the big cities in these states that we're talking about. Um, and whether or not he's convicted in these criminal cases, I don't think that even if he were acquitted in one of them, I don't think that suddenly a bunch of swing voters will say, yeah, you know, he's getting a raw deal because he just seems like a decent guy who's just doing the best he can. Nobody's ever tried to do what they tried to do on January 6th, and, you know, ever in this country. So it's it's it still stands out as just reprehensible and anti-American. By the way, the man who knows the numbers by heart are Monroe Anderson in uh, the phone call that Donald Trump made. Let's just compare and contrast, folks, as we uh, close out this segment. Uh, Donald Trump's attitude about votes in Georgia and square footage in apartments. So when it came to square footage in apartments, 11,000, 30,000, what's the difference? Okay. When it came to Georgia, he lost by a, like, I forget what the exact number was, 11,000 something. Monroe will tell me tomorrow. He knows it by heart. Let's say it's 11,800. Let's just make that up. And that's the precise number Donald Trump told the Secretary of State that he needed to find to get rid of. <laughs> So that uh -huh. he, Donald Trump, would be victorious uh, in Georgia. And it would be funny if the Secretary of State came back to him with a Trumpian-like argument. He goes, Donnie, 11,000, 30,000. What difference does it make? you got to find 30,000 votes. Uh, no, 11,000 exactly. Uh, <laughs> there's no consistency, MAGA, in this. Uh, by the way, uh, Jim has um, or alluded to Roy Cohn in many uh, conversations and I urge everybody, uh, there's a lot of documentaries There's about Roy Cohn. I think there's one on Netflix. But pound for pound, I think if you, the most illuminating uh, sort of like uh, view into Roy Cohn uh, is in the play uh, Angels in America, which I think is still on somewhere streaming, HBO, I want to say. Uh, and uh, in that play, uh, Al Pacino plays Roy Cohn. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Jim, but he freaking kills. I'm a big Pacino fan, and he just absolutely kills it as Roy Cohn. If you want to see the Trumpian mindset in all its demented glory, uh, check out Angels in America. Tony the, Kushner, uh, right? That's yeah, funny. Tony Kushner is the playwright who wrote it. Brilliant play. But Al Pacino's performance, classic Pacino ranting and railing and just <laughs> losing his mind as uh, Roy Cohn on his deathbed had AIDS, was denying that he was gay while he had AIDS. Very Trumpian-like, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, and Trump disowned him by that point. Had Trump disowned? I thought, he, I thought he left him, like abandoned him at the end of his life. Because of <laughs> that would be very Trump, uh, right. but um, I'm not aware of that. I know that Trump about 40 years later when he got in trouble, he goes, where's my Roy Cohn? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he wanted Roy. All right, there's so many other legal uh, matters we could talk about, but uh, we've uh, run out of time. Um, but uh, this is just some breaking news, and I might as well get you to comment on it. So it's breaking news, literally, as I speak with you. Trump ordered not to comment or judge 
uh, or staff in fraud case, the former president attacked the judge's clerk in a social media post that quickly disappeared. Donald Trump was chastised on Tuesday by the judge presiding over civil fraud case after the former president posted a message targeting the judge's law clerk. That's the lead in the New York Times. Uh, the story is breaking right now. Uh, Trump attacked a clerk, Allison Greenfield, shortly before noon on his Truth Social site. His post was a picture of Greenfield with Senator Chuck Schumer. Trump mocked Greenfield as Schumer's girlfriend and said that the case against him should be dismissed. Uh, and uh, the judge, Justice uh, N'Goran, after the explained what had happened, though he did not name her, uh, and he said, personal attacks on my members of my court staff are unacceptable, inappropriate, and I will not tolerate them under any circumstances. Jim, closing thoughts. Well, I, I, I guess whatever that breaking news was going to be, I would have been more surprised if it was inconsistent with everything we've said this whole show, because it's just more of the same. There's your thuggery. Good Lord. My, Schumer's girlfriend. I don't even know where he's going with that. It's like, like you don't want to go any deeper into this man's mind uh, to understand which kind of, you know, playground of insult that he's trying to jab in somebody's chest. Yeah, well, what he, it, yes, what he does is uh, he reduces somebody to a, a mockable figure, and then he just lets MAGA take it from there. Yep. So there, there'll be all kinds of memes, all the kinds of uh, uh, social media, uh, quote-unquote, satire about this. Uh, Fox TV will pick it up, and they'll start mocking her uh, as well, and all, all in uh, an effort to somehow or other make Donald Trump look like a victim here, even though, we'll close with this, he said 11,000 square feet was actually 30,000 square feet. Uh, Classic victimhood. How do, yeah. you, how do you get past that? People won't believe my triple evaluations of my properties. All right, before we leave, uh, one more time, uh, tell folks how they can listen to Coogan Knows the Law. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you can find me at cgtrial.com, and we've got all the web, all the stuff up on the web there. Or just look up Coogan Knows the Law on your podcast provider, and you'll find it right next to great podcasts like The Ben Jarofsky Show. There we go. All right, very good. Thank you, Jim. Uh, and I uh, also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. Jim knows that. Producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. And remember, you can always catch previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J. Bonus interviews, and a whole lot more, all for free at chicagoreader.com. You want to find Jim Coogan online? Just search Coogan Knows the Law on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J. Show, and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.